basically, yeah, we're kind of jumping in just, you know, ad hoc and uh, trying to trying to keep it as chaotic as possible, basically, right? Hello, everybody, and welcome to The Big Show. This is episode number two of the Maxwell Anderson podcast. First episode, as you probably remember, was recorded four years ago um with dave evans from designing your life and uh yeah we just kind of only want to roll out shows when we have really good content um i figure better um you know better be selective than to just kind of do something every week like the weekend reader i'm very excited about uh this conversation what we're doing is a a little uh three-way call with a really uh, fun and impressive entrepreneur named Paul Vogie, uh, who you'll meet in a second. He's the founder of Aura Bora Sparkling Water, uh, which you can find on your grocery shelves if you live in the western half of the United States and uh, shop at Whole Foods and I think at Walmart. My co-host for this conversation is Whitney Bull. Um, many of you know him from his uh, time touring with the Yale Whiffenpuffs. Um, he's a, uh, talented acapella singer as well as a keen financial mind. And we thought what better person to interview Paul with, um, than Whitney, Whitney, thank you for joining us. So, yeah, one of those things might be true and I'll leave it up to you guys to guess which one. <laughs> this is something that we you know, just doing a podcast of any kind, something audio, something different uh, is a little 2021 trial for the weekend reader. Um, A lot of you have asked, Hey, what about doing a podcast, something like that? So this is probably the last podcast that we'll do because of the quality so far. And, um, but I appreciate you guys listening. (laughs) The goal though, is to just talk to interesting people. And when I say the goal, as if there's more than one episode happening right now, but um this will, don't worry guys, this will be edited. This is, this is a, this is a first rate production. We have a whole team. I like it. Of, you're uh, shooting from the hip and I think you're definitely hitting some stuff. <laughs> yeah. Keep <laughs> shooting. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Come on. This is serious. This is, this is audio. Okay. Paul Vogie, welcome to the show. Again, when you nod your head. Thank you. Thrilled to be here. Can't believe it's just me and Dave Evans. <laughs> I think you have a one second delay, but I was saying thrilled to be here. Can't believe it's just me and Dave Evans. That's quite the crowd. I'm feeling really good about myself. Well, you should, you should be. Paul is here to, uh, partly just get to, as a friend, and I asked him, and partly he's um, growing his business, Ouroboros Sparkling Water, and they are... He and his wife are pitching on Shark Tank this coming Friday night. Um, and uh, But I, I, I thought I'd start off just, you know, Paul, tell us about Ouroboros. What is it and where did it come from? Sure. Ouroboros is a herbal sparkling water. We make artisanal sparkling water drinks with herbs, fruits, and flowers. So think the LaCroix or Polar or Waterloo or Topo Chico that you know and love and give it more interesting ingredients, differentiated varieties in a whimsical can, and that's Ourobora. It came about, I grew up a lot of sparkling water, 
Uh, and at a few of my jobs, I was drinking eight to 10 cans per day, including one at uh, Saturn V, Max's company that I used to work for. And I just kind of felt like sparkling water needed a premium artisanal craft, pick a word, offering. Um, at a, two jobs ago, there was a pantry where they had kettle potato chips, Justin's peanut butter, and Jenny's ice cream. And it felt like all three of these companies are doing exactly what we just said. They have different ingredients, different varieties, cooler packaging, and it's a higher price point because it tastes better and it's more natural. And it felt like sparkling water, on the other hand, was a commodity and people didn't drink it as a treat. They just kind of drank it because it was better than the sink, but worse than anything else in their fridge. So that was kind of the beginning of the idea. Um, and it's kind of snowballed into a, a company a few years later. Winnie, you want to jump in with a question? Sure. Yeah. yeah. Kind of, I was kind of hoping um, you'd, you'd add a little more value than you've done so far. So like, it'd be great. <laughs> I'm just winding up. So, so Paul, you know, super, super interesting. And, and, kind of taking this a step back maybe, but you know, what you mentioned there at the end uh, in terms of, you know, your kind of entrepreneurial inclinations, um, you know, I get wanting to uh, not work with Max anymore at Saturn V, but in terms of going, you know, the entrepreneurial route, um, <laughs> you know, I'm really curious about that, right? So, you know, I really admire, you know, the entrepreneurial spirit, of course, but for people to really do it, um, you know, is really, is really interesting because obviously most people don't. Um, so, so what do you think it is about you or maybe about, you know, your mentors or kind of your experience to date that that's made you go this direction rather than, you know, finding a groove, finding something a little more structured, um, and, and just kind of going with a more uh, huge, you know, finance path or business path. I don't know. I, I guess, uh, so I'm the son of two lawyers. So they both had very, exactly what you just said, very structured lives and structured firms and billable hours, um, and I think maybe a disproportionate number of my many siblings are entrepreneurs as well. So I don't know if people just want to do the opposite of what their parents do, depending on how rebellious they are. I would say at every phase of my life, kind of childhood, high school, college, et cetera, there was always something I was trying to sell or start or do or be a part of that was in the entrepreneurial space. Um, immediately after college, I was selling vintage t-shirts out of a, a truck camper on college campuses. Um, Soon thereafter, I had like a Christmas tree stand, just various kind of small, mostly resale businesses. Like it wasn't manufacturing anything. It was buying something wholesale and selling it retail. Um, so I don't know, to answer your question of why, I guess there's a, a really deep satisfaction in creating something from nothing. Um, and I think most entrepreneurs would probably say, you know, a business is more than just the sum of its parts. And there's something extremely fulfilling about putting something together. And next thing you know, people are coming to buy those t-shirts or coming to buy those Christmas trees. Or in the case of working for Saturn V, it was an interesting mix of being a business that I was working for with bosses and you know investors, et cetera, but also extremely entrepreneurial and trying to make the businesses we bought better, trying to start businesses from scratch, um, but with a little more formal structure. So to your earlier joke, you know, I would say there was definitely some piece of working at Saturn Five that was, wow, this is uh, this is kind of like all the pieces of being an entrepreneur without all the risk. Like this is amazing. You know, this is a great way of scratching that itch without quitting my job and you know being hungry. On this, at the same time, it feels like some of the best ideas happen because you you have that risk or because you're hungry, etc.
No, but it, it brings up something I wanted to explore, Paul, which is like, who would you say is the best manager or boss you ever had? Yeah, it's easy. Um, he lives in Austin. His name is Evan Loomis. <laughs> Nicely done. <laughs> no, but you, you mentioned some, I hadn't thought about that or I didn't necessarily really connect the dots on this before, Paul, but you said of your many siblings, a disproportionate number uh, or entrepreneurs. Mm-hmm. I think probably people are listening to saying like, how many siblings does this guy have? Number one. Yeah. <laughs> and number two, like how many are entrepreneurs? What are they doing? Sure. Uh, so I'm the youngest of five. So my oldest sibling is a sister. She has that ice cream parlor. Yeah. Uh, she did go to law school and then decided to be an entrepreneur. My brother Hank is an independent filmmaker. So he's an entrepreneur. My brother John works in private equity because um, he was rebelling against his older brother Hank and older <laughs> sister John. So yeah. he wanted to do something. Yeah, you, yeah, you got to cut your own path. My brother Michael will probably eventually be an entrepreneur, right? Now he works for a startup. So he's in kind of an entrepreneurial role. Right. Um, so three out of five. What, tell the story. Tell me, tell about this, the vintage t-shirt business. What, what was yeah. that? What was- uh, I always grew up wearing old t-shirts. Cause like I said, I was the youngest of five and I was the youngest cousin of 12. So I'd get these amazing t-shirts from my cousins that are six, seven, 10 years older than me. Uh, and I got so much street cred for them. Like I remember I had this old star Wars t-shirt, which I'm sure it was bought for my oldest cousin like 10 years after the old movies. But when I was in middle school and the new movies were coming out and I had like Luke Skywalker on my shirt from 1989, people were just blown away. Where'd you get that shirt, et cetera. So that just continued where I had kind of 1980s to mid 2000s retro t-shirts. And it was something I did at thrift stores through college. Los Angeles is a big vintage clothing scene. Shortly after college, I married my wife, Maddie, which a theme of these stories is that I kind of dragged Maddie into these entrepreneurial things. And she's like quickly the most valuable player and the only reason we have any kind of business. <laughs> so she like does it reluctantly. And then it's really the only reason we're succeeding. Um, anyway, so she, we were like digging through rag stocks, grabbing t-shirts. How yeah. could you make money doing that? There's uh, So think about the thrift store, whether it's Goodwill, Salvation Army, a local one near you. Most thrift stores have a 30-day inventory policy. So you'll see those dots on items because nothing in the store stays longer than 30 days. They're built to move inventory. Didn't know that. On the the 31st day, all of the stuff with the same color dot gets put on a truck and taken somewhere far outside the city you live in to a rag house. At those rag houses, there are 20 to 30 people that are just sifting all day and they're sifting for t-shirts and they're sifting for good stuff. So we'd walk into, we probably went to 10 or 20 of these and imagine just two huge bins. One of them is an enormous bin. One of them is a tiny bin. And mostly all day, they're just sifting through one second on each item of clothing, putting it in the big bin where it's eventually going to get shipped out of America to a different country to become a textile or sold third hand in South America or Africa or Asia. The valuable bin is anytime they see a sports jersey or something with Mickey Mouse on it or a dress you could sell for prom or a tuxedo gets thrown in this expensive bin. Rag houses then put all of that stuff in a room and you book time. Often you pay money up front. So this this is a real business. People do this, (laughs) including us for a year, where I'd wire them $2,000 and they'd say you have three hours to collect, they usually had a going rate. So for a lot of them, it was like $2 per pound or $10 per pound if it was higher end. And you could walk in and you had to collect that amount of clothing, otherwise you lost money. So you felt like, okay, I need to find enough good stuff. And sometimes we got burned because I paid the a thousand or 2000 bucks and show up and we'd only find like $1,200 worth of good stuff. 
And other times, I mean, you're just drenched in sweat. The three hours are up, they're dragging you out of the room and you just feel like, wow, I just got all the best t-shirts. Maddie and I were just talking about this the other week because our best return was on a, on a Wednesday, we found this old retro Quicksilver ski jacket and it had all these patches on it. It was probably from the mid eighties. Two days later, we were on campus at the University of Vermont. I had just cleaned the jacket. I just put it on this hanger and a kid walked up and he said, wow, this is an amazing jacket. My dad had one just like this. How much is it? And I hadn't put a price tag on it yet. I had just bought it for $1 two days prior. And I just thought, let me just throw out a atrociously high number for two reasons. One, we're at the University of Vermont where every kid's a skier. So ski jacket you know, is probably higher, indexed higher, worth more on that campus. And two, it was snowing and the kid was wearing a t-shirt. <laughs> so that was, our, that was ethically probably wrong. Yeah, price but, discrimination, but all right. That's right, that's right. I wouldn't, in court, I would probably deny that. And I said, uh, yeah, it's $250. And he said, wow, what a steal for this piece. <laughs> he pulled out his credit card, swiped it, and we just made $249 in like 48 hours. The most amazing return on investment. It was awesome. That's yeah, a fantastic. This, this rag house thing though is like mind blowing to me. It's Never really weird. It. Yeah, this feels like this should this should be a reality TV show uh, or, or a documentary. Right, right after we uh, stop record on this thing, let's go make that documentary. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. Uh, okay, so that's the ra- that's the shirt that get business. What about and then Christmas trees? Like what what yeah. did you do with Christmas trees? So shortly after the shirts thing, eventually we realized we cannot scale this. We're like having fun. Living in, living in a camper wasn't that expensive to live, but it's two of us literally digging through clothing. So it didn't take a genius. This was what you were doing for income. That's right. Yes. Yeah. yeah. For about, about a year. Um, we moved to Denver shortly thereafter because my wife, Maddie, got a job. I started working at this tech company and the house we moved into was on this like really kind of uh, not a single blade of grass, just a dirt lot. When we moved in, it was just filled with trash because no one had lived there in three or four years. Yeah. And I very naively thought, oh my gosh, we should totally plant Christmas trees. Like we're in Denver, it snows here, it's gonna be amazing. amazing. Everyone else knew this, I didn't know this, but Christmas trees take 10 years to grow to full (laughs) size. Um, Oh, you were gonna plant like a sapling or like a- Exactly, I I was gonna plant them and I literally, this is how dumb I am. I thought, wow, we moved in in March. And I thought, oh my gosh, if I plant these next weekend, this Christmas, we can have a Christmas tree farm, amazing. Yeah. <laughs> and you know about the concept of like rings on the stump, you know, indicate the years that trees been around. Like, you know. totally, totally out of mind. Didn't think about it at all. All I saw was a rectangle that needed trees. <laughs> so I start calling around and everyone's like, well, you know, the altitude in Denver is so high that it actually takes 20 years for Christmas trees to grow here. In fact, in Colorado, we truck in all our trees from Oregon and Michigan. And that got me thinking of, wait, all of the trees are trucked in from Oregon and Michigan? And I talked to like two or three kind of Christmas tree kingpins of Colorado, one of which was retiring. So I think he was probably a little looser tongue than he would be anyway, or otherwise. And he said, hey, you should go to this person and this person. They're going to sell you trees. So I started calling up these farms. This is like middle of the summer, which fortunately you have to book these trees many months in advance. In the first year, I just bought 150 trees. They came on a truck. We unloaded them. And in two weekends, we had sold them all. So the reason for that was, to be honest, I wasn't very uh excited about my job at the time it was not 
not that interesting. It was kind of a startup that had just gotten pretty bureaucratic. So a lot of the fun had been sucked out of it. So having this kind of side project of, you know, Christmas trees and I'd run home from work at 5.05 and turn on the lights and play the Christmas music and people would come by and buy trees. So anyway, we did it for four Christmases. It was really fun. And what, what are the economics on a Christmas tree? What are you, what are you paying for a tree yeah. and what are you selling them at? So and, not and as good as that. Before you answer that, how does one go about meeting the Christmas tree kingpins of Colorado? Because I wouldn't know where to start. <laughs> that's that's the second documentary, I think, yeah. <laughs> so the Christmas tree margins are not as good as the Quicksilver retro ski jacket margins, but they're still pretty good. We were selling our average tree for about $85. Our cheapest tree was 55. Our most expensive kind of 10, 11 footer was 120. Uh, we were buying those trees. So on the, the short ones, we had about a 2X multiple, a 50% gross margin, where I'd buy that tree for $35 and sell it for 70. And on the biggest trees, like the most expensive tree I ever sold was $175. And I remember I bought that tree for about 90 bucks. So you could pretty much double your money at the very most triple your money. Um, and a lot of that- Is that including the shipping and tracking? All in, yeah. And do you have to water, like- when I see go to Christmas tree lots, they're not watering. They're not really caring for them. Is that right? They're just, you just try uh, to them fast. The, yeah, the ones in the stands, they typically put water in, but in Colorado in particular, because it's so sunny and so dry, they usually have misters and they have them underneath this kind of tarp. That way they kind of look fresh. And then you walk up there on December 20th, you think it was just cut and you put it in your house. So that ended up being one of our biggest advantages was because I was going directly to the farm, I knew what days they were getting cut. So we probably 10 or 11 times each year, someone would say, this is the third tree lot we've gone to. And they're usually saying that to say like, and by the way, it's the least impressive. This is just in your front yard. This is kind of <laughs> weird. But this is the third tree lot we've gone to. You have the cheapest prices in the freshest trees. What's going on? Um, and usually it was just because the Home Depot lots are cutting those trees on Labor Day and we're cutting them, you know, in December. Wow. Your, 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 your wife, it seems like a, just a wonderful person. Yeah. <laughs> a lot of tolerance yeah <laughs> i, I want to go i want to get into the shark tank because i think it's really yeah. interesting for people how did like how do you get on shark tank so we had a very unique experience in that uh i'll say beginning of covid probably like first first week of april we've been shocked or locked down for like two weeks i got an email in my inbox from someone claiming to be a Shark Tank casting director, which of course I just assumed was a friend who had too much time on his hands because of COVID just pranking us. Yeah. And it was like, it was shortly after Ourobora started to be on enough shelves that people started to see it, who I knew. And anyway, so I, I called the number assuming it was just gonna be a friend who had like grabbed a burner phone or a Google voice number. And sure enough, this guy answered and he was not a friend. He was a Shark Tank casting director. And he explained that they traditionally have a application process that is just on their website. You fill out this long application, send an audition video, et cetera. And there's tens of thousands of these and they whittle it down to about a hundred entrepreneurs every year. However, when they have guest sharks on, so not Mr. Wonderful, not Robert, not Mark Cuban, not Lori, not Barbara, they wanna grab entrepreneurs in those guest sharks categories. That way it's a more interesting conversation. So fortunately for us, two of the guest sharks this season are in food and beverage. So this casting director's job was to go find promising young food and beverage entrepreneurs. That way it could be a more interesting episode for those guest sharks. Then what, was so, it, okay, he calls yeah. you up, you have the call with him. Yeah. Turns out he's not a, a joker. It's a, it's a yeah. real guy. 
will you come be on the show? He's basically inviting you to come apply to be on the show. You apply. Exactly. So he's, he's inviting us to send in an audition tape and send in the product. What's so, an audition tape? Like, literally. Like you're pitching your, yep. your company? Yep. He said, hey, in two and a half minutes, pitch your company with your co-founder, with my wife, Maddie. Uh, bring, his exact quote was, bring infomercial energy. Like, <laughs> he, he he as exciting as possible. <laughs> um, so again, I just thought, this is so slim. So we took it seriously enough. Um, just assuming nothing is going to come from this. I'm sure this guy sent this email to a thousand people today, sent in this paperwork, sent in the video, didn't hear anything for many, many weeks. And then probably end of June, beginning of July, got an email saying, Hey, you moved on to the next round. Here's your producer. They're going to coach you through getting into the final round. You then meet. There's like more specifics that I'm technically not allowed to talk about. I'm not actually sure what is allowed and what's not allowed, but all that to say, eventually we thought, okay, we're not going on the show because no one said anything to us for a while. Sure. And then like last week of July, someone said, hey, 10 days from now, can you drive out to the studio uh, and film? Which is where? Usually it's in the Sony lot in Los Angeles. This year it was in Las Vegas due to COVID. So they rented out the Venetian. It was like by, you know, kind of like NBA bubble style, the most impressive anti-COVID safe thing I've ever been a part of. Um, we probably got part text. of quite a few, I imagine. Yeah, yeah, oh, yeah. Right. <laughs> you know, in, in this last 10 months, I've been, been a part of quite a few. We got like probably a COVID test every 48 hours. We were locked in our hotel room for nine days. Nine um, days? Yeah, nine days. Holy cow. Why so long? It's just, you're uh, not, you can't be filming more than one day, are you? No, no, you're just filming for one day. If, if there was like a knock at the door and we'd have a tray of food and then like no one would be there. And we were in this hallway in, in the Venetian, filled with entrepreneurs. I didn't see anybody for nine days, but I could kind of hear them through the walls. I knew there were people there. Um, and then finally, one day, a producer shows up and says, great, you're clear, come downstairs. And a couple hours later, cameras were rolling. It's like a really glitzy prison, basically. And what, what's it like? Okay, he's like, come, now today's the day, come. You putting makeup on? Are you like, do you practice? I assume you already had some makeup on. Yeah. Well, knowing, yeah. Knowing me, of course, that was the best part of the nine days. No, yeah, someone comes up, grabs us, brought us downstairs to this huge ballroom. And, and what's great is, you know, in the show, traditionally there are four entrepreneurs every episode, four companies pitch. So we could see the other three companies filming with us in this ballroom. And, and as you can imagine, we all just got released from our hotel rooms after nine days. We're just elated. Couldn't be more excited. That infomercial energy is, is oh, coming yes. like real. Yes. Yeah. So yeah, go down to that room. There was a makeup person and a hair person kind of in full COVID regalia. We did one walkthrough of the set uh, when the sharks were not present and then waited around, waited around as I was like slowly getting more and more anxious. And they just kind of like icing the kicker. They kind of want to make sure you're as nervous as possible. And then they send you out there. I, I don't want to jump ahead too much, but um, you know, go, going into this, you know, I'm curious, what were you most concerned about in terms of you know, what, what you could kind of be attacked for, or, you know, there might be some holes in the story, Sure. Uh, you know, and, and I wonder, and, and I get, well, I got to follow up, but, but. So in the summer, when this was just a possibility, not a certainty, as you can imagine, we just watched every episode of Shark Tank that's ever come out. And I was always a huge fan of the show and it's mostly theatrics, but if you're even a little bit entrepreneurial or a little bit interested in business, it's great. Yeah. And, and there was one, often a theme of if you showed up alone, 
you're almost just, you're just destined to get chewed, chewed apart. Like there's <laughs> no chance you're getting an investor. They're going to make fun of every piece of you and you get no relief because they're only asking you questions. So one thing was for sure, I wanted Maddie to be there no matter what. Um, even if Maddie- She's, had, she's like, Paul again? Yeah, right. Yeah, that's right. I was like, if it's just me, I know they're going to come out and say, this guy's stupid face. We hate this guy. Let's chew him apart. Whereas with Maddie, I felt a little more comfortable. So the first thing was that. The second one was we noticed the theme- Often in Shark Tank, depending on the shark, there are certain things you can say that certain sharks respond to. So we watched in all these episodes that if you ever said the phrase, going door to door selling your product, if you said door to door, Mark Cuban without fail, and if you're listening to this and you watch Shark Tank, you'll start recognizing this. He'd go, that away, nice. Love that hustle. He just love it. Just say door to door. You could say going door to door, not selling anything. And he'd say, amazing. Love that hustle. If you said anything about online marketing whatsoever, the camera will quickly show Robert Hershevik because he's some kind of online marketing whiz kid. If you said anything about big retailers, in our case at the time, it was just Whole Foods. We weren't in Walmart yet. They'll immediately talk about Lori because she has all these connections to retailers. So all that to say in building the pitch and practicing, we were trying to, to your point, avoid the pitfalls of, yes, it's an early business. Sparkling water is right now the most competitive place in the beverage aisle. At that time, we'd been on the shelf at our oldest retailer for six months. It's three times the price of a traditional sparkling water. All of these negative things you can stack up. And we were instead just trying to fill it with things that we'd seen all of them respond to for many seasons. You'll have to watch on Friday to see if we did a good job or not. And hopefully the editors show the good parts, but yeah. So like buzzword potpourri, basically. That's right. As many buzzwords as possible. Yes, that's accurate. I've been in a lot of business meetings like that, actually. <laughs> well, so so this one, th this, uh, you know, is not that great of a follow-up, but it's I'm curious and it feels feels not irrelevant here, which is, you know, maybe they addressed this, maybe they didn't, but I'm just curious about your thoughts on, you know, obviously the pandemic uh, as, as kind of, you know, constant game changer, you know, do you see the pandemic sort of affecting the consumer demand picture now and, you know, the ensuing recovery, um, you know, the post COVID world uh, that we'll hopefully see relatively soon, you know, how do you see that changing, you know, the dimensions of, of your business plan? So we, in a really weird way, um, you know, we launched, we first started selling these products at the beginning of 2020, which obviously if I knew now what I, if I knew then what I know now, wasn't probably the best time to start a consumer product company that is based on people being in a store, grabbing it with their hands. Right. Um, yeah. So for the first eight weeks of 2020, to the Mark Cuban point, I was going door to door, business to business, grocery store to grocery store selling this stuff and then found a local distributor and luckily found a national distributor kind of right before the lockdowns. This amazing thing happened. So we're usually sold. If you imagine your grocery store at the front, there's probably a ready to drink beverage fridge. And on the far left side, you probably have private label water or private label seltzer. And on the far right side, you probably have CBD infused collagen water, kombucha, et cetera, cold brew, whatever's in there. We're usually in that fridge. That fridge this year is down more than 50% based on 2019 for two reasons. One, everyone's ordering groceries. And when you're ordering groceries, you stock up. So you're not going to buy this single serve anything. And two, half of the things that are consumed from that fridge are consumed in the store. And if you're wearing a mask, you're not going to be able to drink it. So why even grab it? So all that to say, immediately, two months into selling these products, we had to try to figure out a way to keep the momentum going. 
Luckily, we have really great branding and it's a pantry staple. I think both of those things really help. So you always have sparkling water in your house. So we kind of begged a friend to help us build a website really quick. And we started selling direct to consumer. And you've probably heard this a hundred times, you know, just in the last couple of weeks, because everyone's talking about it. But, you know, immediately there's this new direct to consumer uh, food and beverage craze and people are ordering all kinds of crazy products over the internet. So luckily that's us included. And we started selling sparkling water over the internet. So to answer the first half of your question, it's become almost 50% of our business is shipping door to door for, you know, uh, consumers, not through grocery stores, which I would have never imagined a year ago. Paul, I'm, I'm curious about, um, you, you know, been, you've been hustling, you said, since a kid and like always trying to sell things and do things. Uh, but this is, hey, you're actually hanging out your own shingle, doing it yourself. What has been the best part of that, uh, this experience so far? And it's, you're, you're only a year into it. And, and then what's been the hardest part? I'll, I'll start bad, go to good. So the, the, the hardest part, and I'll say a general statement and then give a few examples, is just no one cares as much as I do. Yeah. Um, and I, I saw this working for you, Max, with both you and Evan feeling that of, you know, your, your name's on the paperwork. Of course, no one else is going to care as much as you do. In the same way, I thought, uh, this is a silly example, but it was this summer kind of before I had hired someone to help me with operations. And I was, you know, so of course, I'm interested in the consumer side of this business, building interesting products that consumers need, finding it in their retailers, coming out with new flavors, et cetera. I thought that'd be like 100% of this business. Turns out it's mostly putting stuff on pallets, onto trucks, off of trucks, off to pallets, onto the shelf. That's like 98% of everything you own in your house was less about the manufacturing and more about the distribution. So there was a time this summer where I was just wondering, why does no one care as much as me? It was a day where I probably talked to 20 different people involved in that supply chain a distribution center in Colorado, shipping product to a distribution center in California. Three different trucks are involved. They had lost a pallet. I can't get in touch to get the pallet back to California. So instead it's either gonna be lost and I pay for it or they're gonna send it back to Colorado and then I pay for it to get reshipped out to California. And it's just, it's not my expertise. It's not something I enjoy. And it was so difficult because one at the time I'm running on the fewest dollars ever that I could imagine running this business on. And I'm talking to a group of, at this point, 12 or 13 different people I'm calling all day. They don't know my name. They don't care. They've never tried these products. This is one of 26 pallets in the truck. Dude, we could not give a single dollar for your paint. We don't care whatsoever. And I think that feeling as an entrepreneur is just so, it's one, it's a sinking feeling. Another one kind of catches you at the deer in headlights because you think, wait, it's, it's what I think about when I wake up, when I'm brushing my teeth, when I'm in the shower, when I go to bed at night, how could no one else care at all? So I'd say that was the hardest part involved in that is uh, loneliness, frustration about not, uh, not knowing who to ask what, you know, it's a very competitive industry. So me trying to find answers is, is purposefully difficult. The most positive thing on the other end of the business, kind of actually talking to consumers, you know, we're finally hitting a scale where I probably get 20 emails a day from someone saying today was someone saying, Hey, I'm trying dry January. Uh, I, I drank too much in December and thank God for your product. This is going to get me through the month. I'm a huge fan. Or two weeks ago, Hey, I was in whole foods. I hate sparkling water. 
I love soda. I tried your product. This is going to get me off of soda. Or, or even just the normal everyday orders coming in, showing that, wow, look at all these orders we got on Thrive Market. Look at the orders we got off our website. And particularly the reorders of people trying a lavender cucumber flavored sparkling water. I mean, they've already got to be kind of a weird person to try it. And then to like it and reorder is just the most fulfilling thing of, oh my gosh, we created something from nothing and someone's like grabbing it and putting it in their cart and they're coming back the next week and grabbing it again. And I'll put an asterisk on that. More interesting than the emails are when I'm out and about in the Bay Area and I see someone drinking it. It like takes everything in me not to say something. Occasionally, not, and usually I'm not, I don't want to say, hey, that's my drink. I usually walk up and say, whoa, what kind of sparkling water is that? Just to get a real honest opinion. And it's almost always a positive opinion. So I'm like, great, this is working. A total stranger walked up and they raved about the product they're holding. Or they're like, this is COVID, get away from me. Why are you getting so close? Stop talking to me. I love it. Paul, that's great. What, if, if, just like, if someone is listening to this and they're like, they have an idea for a business and they're wondering, should I go for it? Should I not? Like, you, you know, what would you say to them now that you wouldn't have been able to say to them a year ago? Uh, I think to, to the point I was making about the vintage clothing business where I kind of joked that, hey, worst case scenario, I'm just some guy with the most amazing t-shirts you've ever met. <laughs> and I wasted a year and I have a lot of other clothing I don't care about, but these t-shirts are amazing. Similarly, I kind of felt like worst case scenario, I'm just a guy with a hundred thousand cans of sparkling water and the rest <laughs> of my life, I'm drinking sparkling water and I like it. So who cares? Um, I would say now, if I could talk to my younger self, one, I was always someone who would go for it, but I think I, for lack of a better word, just kind of jumped the gun on certain things and didn't prepare on other things. So it's like, it's so appealing and so interesting. I feel like more and more young people are interested in being entrepreneurs and whether it's Shark Tank or any, how I built this, there's so many yeah. awesome forms of media that just praise entrepreneurship. Um, this podcast, I, I mean, I don't want to, yeah, this, yeah, this podcast, it's not about that, it's not about <laughs> bragging about that. It's fine. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, put quickly, I wish I had thought, uh, this is going to be really difficult. So start systems early. And I think this also came up often with Saturn five, where we buy businesses that had no systems. And often the reason the entrepreneur was selling the business is because they just got so inundated in their one-off non-scalable projects that rather than thinking, I want to continue to build this business, they started thinking, how do I sell this business? I want out of here. This is so overwhelming. So what I wish I had told myself a year ago was this is going to be really fulfilling and it'll even be more fulfilling if from the get-go you're organized and it's scalable and you're kind of laser focused on one goal. Paul, Paul, Paul what are, I should have asked this at the beginning. Can you take us through what, uh, you, you mentioned that one flavor, can you just give us the f flavors that you, you were sure. offering? Yeah. Yeah, I didn't, I didn't say this at the beginning. A big part of the starting the company process was Maddie, that's my wife, we owned a soda stream. And luckily I married into a family that had a lot of botanicals and essential oils and I'll say just substances that were not in my house growing up. So when we started making kind of unique, natural tasting sparkling waters with crazy flavors, you know, we'd go to like fruit that we had in our fridge, but also a little bit of lavender oil or... Uh, we happen to have rose, that's great. And we, we started just tinkering with uh, these recipes, most of which were 
totally disgusting and or dangerous to swallow because you're, <laughs> you're not supposed to drink certain things apparently. Um, but anyway, we, we stumbled across kind of these five recipes that enough friends said they liked that we started to, we wanted to launch these five and they are in order of, uh, I'll say sales velocity, lavender cucumber, cactus rose, peppermint watermelon, basil berry, and lemongrass coconut, which is totally devastating because lemongrass is by far my favorite and no one buys it. That's so my favorite recipe, too, actually. Great. We have good taste. That's, that's what I choose to believe. That's, it's good with Thai food. Agreed. Yeah. Uh, and, and Paul, if people want to go try some more Abora, they could go, where can they buy it? So as you said at the beginning, if you live west of Texas, you'll have an easier time finding it than east of Texas. Um, if you live east of Texas, move west. Uh, <laughs> right now, we are in- It'll be worth it. <laughs> yeah, just, just <laughs> For the water it. alone. <laughs> yeah, come for the sparkling water, stay for the cheaper prices, unless you're in California. Mostly talking about Colorado. Uh, okay, in, in Colorado, Utah, New Mexico, they can find it at Whole Foods. If they live in the Midwest, they can probably find it at Meyer. They live in California or the Pacific Northwest. You can find us at Walmart, um, or you can go to Ourobora.com and click where to find and click on your town and hopefully we're there. Whitney, what questions is does this leave you with any questions that we cover? I mean, I guess, I, you know, I don't want to shift too far away from the focus, but I'm curious, you know, what's next? Is it, is it kind of, you know, continue to, to grow and, and maintain the business, you know, as it stands, you know, are you, uh, are you thinking about that next thing, you know, within Ourobora or, or elsewhere, you know, yeah. what's next, what's next for Paul? I know this is audio, so you're not gonna be able to see it, but I'll show it to you too. Um, so we're starting six packs. They're pretty cool. Um, we just got a couple of retailers that signed on to distribute the six packs. Obviously most sparkling water drinkers in this country, at least are buying them in bulk, not in the fridge, but in the warm aisle where you might buy LaCroix or Waterloo or Polar. So really excited for that. Um, I kind of felt like 2020 was everyone trying it once or twice and liking it. And I'm hoping 2021 can be everyone stocking up and changing their sparkling water loyalties. We'll see. And uh, we're working on a couple of new flavors as well. I think what I'm most excited by, despite those two things, is both as a result of our marketing efforts so far and as a result of what we anticipate from Shark Tank, we've built up this audience of, I'll say like kind of sparkling water aficionados that they, they get our emails, they're interested in our marketing, they buy from us frequently. And there's going to be enough of them, I hope at some point this year that we wanna do limited edition flavors. For Christmas time, we're thinking about doing kind of a bergamot cardamom variety. Hmm. And I probably couldn't sell that to enough people myself right now because stores, it's it's too much of a niche. It's not in the mainstream enough. But if we build up our own audience of consumers, I'm so excited to just ship it to 20,000 people. And that's it. We sell 20,000 cans of it. It doesn't come back for a year. And we can do it profitably only because we're selling it ourselves. So that's probably the piece of the, the new piece of the business I'm most excited about this year. Very cool. Sort of the thousand true fans, Max. There you go, Winnie. Paul, before we go, I, I, one question I didn't ask, but as it occurs to me is like, so you've worked with your wife in this. Um, yeah. And, you know, it, that's just interesting to me. Some people are like, oh, I could never work with my spouse. Others yeah. are like, oh, that's great. Um, she's kind of been very involved. Like she's, I think she's, she's on the Shark Tank episode. Is it with you, right? Yes. 
Yes. She designed the cans, but then she also has a, a, another, a day job. Is she right. does. How have you guys navigated all that? Yeah. First, Has that been good for your marriage or <laughs> not so sure? Um, I'll say first regarding the shark tank piece. The first thing I said when we were off stage was I know people are going to watch that and hate me, but love you. So we end up neutral. They're going to be like, that guy was a schmuck. We found him arrogant. We didn't enjoy him whatsoever. She was lovely. We'll buy whatever she's selling. So hopefully that's that why I brought Whitney on this podcast to help. Like, <laughs> talk to you. Yeah. I'm, I'm making Max look awesome. <laughs> <laughs> no, go ahead. I'll, I'll say, um, I don't know if I could say it's been a net positive or a net negative to our marriage. I will say it's probably not something either one of us expected when we met. You know, I know a few kind of couple of friends of mine where he happened to play guitar. She happened to play violin and look at that. They're in a band or, uh, they're both athletes, how amazing, or they're both, they're both restaurateurs and they start a restaurant and we just, we weren't even in the same fields whatsoever. Um, but Maddie has always been in kind of creative direction and branding, usually for software startups. That's what she's done in the Bay area. So it's been a really nice change of pace. Cause I think both of us have respect for what the other person does. Um, I would imagine the vast majority of married couples go their entire lives having some vague idea of what the other does in the day, but not really knowing the details because it's just, you're going to get one line and they come home or maybe one bad thing or one good thing. We don't get all the minutia. So what's been amazing about this here, not only are we locked in the same house, not leaving, but we're getting all of the minutia of each other's. Anyway, all that to say, it's been an amazing experience. I would highly recommend it. Um, yeah. And even most of the negative things I've heard about working with your spouse are, oh man, it's really hard to turn work off. And that might be true, but we both so enjoy this business, Ourobora, that it doesn't feel like a chore to talk about. You know, I'll, I'll often wake up at two in the morning and think of something and write it down. And then like at eight, when we're both awake, the, the thought I just expressed of, Maddie, we can do limited edition flavors. Yeah. And that was a thought at night that immediately shared. And I might've lost that if we hadn't been working on the business, you know, just from eight to nine o'clock driving to work to tell my other coworker, I yeah. might've never thought of that idea. But I yeah. think we just, uh, we're complimentary in that way. Cool. Um, I think, Paul, uh, no pressure on this. Do you want to do a, like a, a discount, like <laughs> drive people to the website type thing? Yeah, so we're doing that during Shark Tank. Anyway, when were you going to release this? I was like tomorrow. Yeah, let's do, uh, and it's it's on the weekend reader? Yeah. Okay, I'll just do weekend reader 15 for 15% off. Weekend reader 15 for 15% off. They just go to your website. When they're checking out, they enter that yep. code? Yep. Okay, because then I can just write that. Um, great. Guys, it's fun for me, uh, for you two to meet each other. Um, it, it, it'd be fun to turn the table sometime and interview Whitney because um, he's, to, to me, you you guys are two of the more like just enjoyable people to talk to in my life uh, for your energy, your uh, intellect, your sense of humor. And so it's fun for you to connect a little bit. I'll send you emails so you have each other's contact info. Um, but appreciate you both doing this. This is, this is a treat and uh, especially on a weekend taking time out to do it. So uh, thank you guys. I really appreciate it.